But if the government wants to come kill me, dude, let him come, baby. I want to be very clear. I would not set myself on fire. But, but, but I found it pretty cool. I guess we'll do it that way. Pretty cool. To catch everyone up, I I recut the movie again. What? It's pretty different. You watched it today, mm. and uh, you were just telling me how much you hated it. <laughs> yeah, it's total disaster. It's a complete waste of everyone's time. Tell us how you... Um, I think it was better. What do you think? It's obs- well, should well, I talk about it first? Tell us how you got to me getting a different cut. So I've been working with a couple people, but honestly what happened is I watched it with a couple people who hadn't seen it. It was the first time I'd kind of rearranged some stuff again. Mm-hmm. So I had already done one more rearrange right? since you had seen it. So you didn't even see the intermediate one because mm-hmm. I only showed a couple people. Okay. And I watched it, and there's something about watching it with other people that reveals some things. Oh, yeah. And watched it with them, and they had some really good notes, but I also just had a gut feeling about a couple things that, well, I don't think I realized, I knew what the movie was about, but I I think I was missing, I I was dancing around a couple of themes, Mm -hmm. which I will kind of hang on to, but I was dancing around a couple things, kind of, you know, beating around the bush, as they say, instead of just tackling it head on. Mm. And once I, I, I think that once I sort of leaned into that theme in a slightly more direct way, it solved some other things. And then that opened up the possibility for me of shooting a couple new things, Mm. which I previously was kind of, you know, we've talked about that. I was open to it, but I was kind of avoiding it. But I was like, you know, this wouldn't be that hard to reshoot. And I really think it would make all of this work. So I, what ended up happening is I kind of, Honestly, I moved a few things back to where they kind of originally were mm. in the script and then moved a couple other things even further away from where they originally were. And as you said off air, you know, it's kind of like uh, dialing knobs. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you meant, what kind of knobs. <laughs> are you talking about like a nuclear power plant Exactly, knobs? yeah. Well, okay. I mean, that's not a terrible analogy. Like, if you do or like thing... spicing a, a soup, yeah, exactly. Like, if it's too much, one flavor dominates, one thing is lacking. It's a it's a delicate right. balance, and um, it feels like you're getting closer to that balance. Although this felt like a completely different thing, almost. You know, to be honest, wow. I hadn't seen the movie in a few weeks. You know, I haven't watched it start to yeah. finish in a few weeks. You know, obviously, the, it's not radically different. So there's no new characters or anything, but it's substan- it felt substantially different. Um, yeah. The pacing is Which definitely different. Which do you different. prefer, the old one or the new one? Well, some of the things that were just just felt, frankly, like, not know, professional isn't the right word, but, like, more narrative. You you go into a scene and you get about halfway through and then you were somewhere else. You know, we go to some a different mm-hmm. story, not a different story, but a different part of the story. And then we come back to that. You know, it's just higher level storytelling than mm-hmm. just going through things chronologically or mm-hmm. sticking with the scene from start to finish. So here we had some breaks right. and some beats and we revisit things and it just felt more 
narrative, you know, or or at least it's a more mm. interesting narrative. Yeah, that I appreciate that. I felt like I was finally ready. I've said this before, and it's always been true, but it's more true now than it was before. I think I was finally ready with this cut to let go of my preconceptions of what I thought I was going to do and instead lean into the tools at my disposal. You know, I'm not making a play. Mm -mm, Um, I can be anywhere, anytime I can tease this out a little bit, this moment, you know, I can fool people. I can create dramatic irony and I can create, you know, suspense over sort of, well, will they or won't they? And will he or won't he? You know, I realized that's what a lot, a lot of what was missing because there were a couple scenes that just kind of asked and answered a number of questions. Mm-hmm. And what I did is sort of exploit those scenes in a more effective mm-hmm. way. I That's what I tried mm-hmm. to do. You're not making a play. And that's interesting because kind of the way it's been cut previously is more like a play in the sense that right. it's, you know, it has a very clear beginning to end and it just goes through chronologically. And this version that you have definitely employs more film style, more so than a play style. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, the cuts and everything back and forth in scenes. So that was definitely an improvement. I noticed that several scenes were shorter, like not shorter, but uh, compacted. They were quicker. Mm-hmm. I thought generally some of the shots that you chose were much better. And I texted you, I was kind of joking, but I texted you, I was like, dude, where, where were these scenes like four versions ago? <laughs> like this take, the take that you have, like this is a really good take. There's a scene in the beginning between the brother and the sister and they, there's exposition that is clear in this version. And I was thinking to myself, like we've talked about not how to, how to, you know, is the exposition clear enough? We've asked that question before. And right. there are just is the problem clear is the enough problem. Is the characters desires. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, even the radio stuff that we devised to try to make certain elements mm-hmm. clearer. I was like, man, that even that could be pared down now because it just feels like the way that it's ordered now. And some of these scenes or clips shots that were not in previous versions make that setup much clearer. Excellent. Do you agree? That's good. Yeah. I mean, that was the goal. Uh, I'm obviously... Le- slightly less able to um, say that definitively, right. but I I appreciate that that's how you feel because yeah that was my that was my intention. There were some things that were done to fill in some blanks, titles and things like mm-hmm. that, and this had virtually no titles. I mean, compared to some versions, you yeah. know, I had what two or three, and I may even add a couple back in, mm-hmm. you know, because to your point, it's 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 dials. Yeah, you know, exactly. You got to turn one up all the way just to see what it does it's sort of like um you know i like playing around with with guitar amps right and i even did that a little bit in this movie but you know to to figure out what a pedal does or an amp you know a knob on an amp sometimes you just gotta cancel everything else out and just turn that all the way up just to be like okay what does this do you know it's like a control and an experiment yeah. Are you the type of person, my brother played guitar and, you know, he had pedals and stuff that was popular back in the 90s, mm-hmm. I guess. And, um, oh, people still use pedals. There are probably more than just two types of people, but I assume there's like two types of people. Like you get that pedal out of the box 
and somebody goes online now and reads all of the stuff about it, like what this knob will do, how much to turn it, how to make this effect. And there's other people that just plug it in and immediately start dialing and will read nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I'm of the which one am I ladder where I would just plug it in immediately and start fiddling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do you do? I think it depends on what my goal is. If I bought a pedal to say, you know, try to sound more like Prince, mm-hmm. I might research which pedal to buy mm-hmm. and how to sound like him. But I have had many influences in the process of making this movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. But as we've talked about previously. I haven't really ripped a lot of stuff. And I don't say that because I dislike when people rip things. I think it's great. A lot of the influences that I really like soaked into my soul a little, you know, and now they're just kind of there. So that's kind of what I've been doing is just, you know, I'll try this, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, you get ideas from people like the titles. We talked about this came from the shining. Mm -hmm. Um, and he ends up, you know, at first I was kind of using them exactly the same way he was using them because I just needed a framework and then I was overusing them for what I needed. And now I'm kind of pairing them back and now I might build them back up a little bit because at the end of the day, you got to decide what's going to work. Um, but yeah, I think another way of thinking about what you said is the idea that if the story is working on a structural level, you need less stuff to make it look right Right. um it's just good design you know and i think if you build the perfect table you don't need very many nails right to hold it together that's kind of what i'm aiming for so i'm glad to hear that you feel like it's it's come a long way it's encouraging how much do you think you'll change it from here because obviously there's stuff you have to shoot in fact some of the scenes are just you describing the scenes two scenes are you Mm -hmm. verbally describing it and of right. of course you're going to shoot that and all, but how much more do you think you're going to change even what you have currently? I'm a little scared to say it on the record, but I hope not much. Mm. I kind of hope that this is the movie. You know, I need to watch it through again. It's kind of doing what I wanted it to yeah. do. I think a lot of people assume the movie is this, and I think I, to some extent, bought into the fact that this was the movie the feedback I've gotten that I have listened to, but also somewhat resisted has been centered around the general concept that people assumed this movie was a man versus environment story. Mm-hmm. If you sort of go back to like ninth grade English, mm-hmm. that this is the story of a man trying to save a venue in the face of adversity that is external. It's just like a classic save the bar story, mm-hmm, sure. you know, like Empire Records or something like that. I was that. thinking of, you ever read the Jack London story where the guy's trying to build a fire in that snowy landscape? To build a fire. It's incredible. Yeah, great short story. It's absolutely incredible. It's, But that's a classic man versus environment. Sure. Man versus man, man versus man versus external forces. Let's just put it in one giant sure. category. You know, like um, the Muppets trying to save something or you know it's just like whatever some bad guy wants to take the property but what i think it's always been to me i just didn't quite know how to articulate it is to me rollers is actually a man versus self story Mm -hmm. it's about self-sabotage it's about isolation it's about what happens when addiction goes unchecked And I never quite knew how to tell that story 
because that's such an internal struggle that it just always kept getting pushed external externally to externalize the issues. But what I think is exciting is I think I finally figured out how to tell the story in a way that makes it very clear that this is kind of about Rufus versus himself. Mm. Rufus versus his own self-loathing and self-sabotage more so than Rufus versus his sister or Rufus versus someone trying to buy the property or Rufus versus that. And I think that's, if I had to boil everything that I changed in the last version to this version, I'd say it's all centered around that general concept Mm -hmm. of heightening his descent into madness effectively as opposed to him just repeatedly banging his head against the wall, which I think is how it felt to people before. Like, okay, great. We've seen him bang his head against the wall. What I think now is, is what happens is that he bangs his head against the wall for the first half of the movie. And then it becomes very clear that he's actually his own worst enemy. This was an issue that, the character in some earlier drafts was almost unrelatable because it was like, here's a problem. And then his reaction was do nothing or is that that's how it felt. And now he is mm-hmm. taking a lot of action. He's, he's doing stuff most of the movie and it's dude, it's kind of unbelievable in a way that just by editing, it's just kind of nuts that you found this kind of stuff in there, you know, going from, drafts that you did mm. 10 drafts ago to now do you mm-hmm. feel like you turned down funny and turned up like not serious but heartfelt uh, yeah between drafts but again in terms of what i originally intended i don't mm. think so you know i think for me it was always equally situated between comedy and right. drama i've been reading poetics by aristotle you know mm. and The way he defines – one of the ways that he defines comedy versus drama is he says drama portrays men, men generally, obviously, but, you know, it's worth mentioning. Drama portrays men better than they really are. Mm. Comedy portrays them worse than they really are. Rollers is a comedy in the classical sense, meaning it is about people acting in a foolish way way it is a man doing the wrong thing Mm. in a way that makes the audience hopefully think what the f is he doing which is what happens when you watch a good comedy you're like no don't go in there you dumbass and then when you think and and to that effect there's even like horror could be that's why i think a lot of times like horror movies you know you see these recut of the trailers you know, with comedic music right, behind it, right. you know, and I think sometimes that might work because in a way horror is more like a comedy than a drama in the sense that if you take Aristotle's definition, it's usually portraying people, both the protagonists and the antagonists as worse than they really are in mm-hmm. real life. Whereas drama, if you think about like, um, I have a hard time writing drama, for instance, because I think I have a lot of if I'm honest, I have a lot of self-loathing, and so I think I often end up writing characters that are anti-heroes mm. and do the wrong thing because I think, if I'm honest, that's how I view myself is is as kind of a fuck-up. I don't really think that, but 
I think people can relate to that. Um, I hear I've heard it said, you know, I'm the piece of shit that the universe revolves around. And I think <laughs> um, I think I believe that about myself to mm-hmm. some extent, and I know Rufus does. I know that Rufus thinks he's a piece of shit, and that the community revolves around him. And so that's to me what makes it a comedy. There are dramatic moments within comedies because my goal was yes to make it funny but ultimately to also make it feel real. Sure. This is kind of weird, but I, I was writing yesterday. I was feeling kind of down in the dumps, and I don't know why, but I just, you know, I'm depressed. And um, I was sitting there. Just throw that out there. I'm not going to – I won't respond. Just keep going and <laughs> say, what? Tell us about your I, day. Uh, wait, wait. Tell us about your day. Did you go to church yesterday? I didn't go to church. No, I went to a baseball game. Oh, uh, well, there um, you go. Exactly. You ever see The Simpsons where Homer no, doesn't go to church know. on Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. You went to a baseball game. Maybe this is your problem. You're not depressed. You're bored. <laughs> it was an interesting baseball game. Well, I don't want to get into too many details. You don't have I went to. with some people that I don't know super well. We had a great time. Mm-hmm. We had a really good time. Did somebody put but, their um, hand on your knee or something? No. One of my one of the guys I was with just was real amped. Uh, yeah. Really yeah. amped and just was mm-hmm. yelling. The entire time. That's rough. And we accidentally got there about an hour early. Oh. It was a lot. Um, How would you know if you got to a baseball game an hour early? You look at the fields, people <laughs> milling around an hour later. You look at the fields, people milling around. It's the worst. Three hours later, they're still milling around. They're milling around. It was an exciting game. There were some home runs. Uh, um, oh, my buddy. <laughs> ah! My buddy who I was with um, has about nine teeth. I won't say who he is. He's never going to listen. <laughs> well, he's had some uh, drug abuse issues in the past. Sure. And he has about nine teeth left. Mm. He, <laughs> maybe more than nine. He's missing some, though. And he brought some little marshmallows because he, um, he was snacking on them. Mm. And he kept joking around, like, putting these little marshmallows between his teeth and like making it look like a tooth. It was very silly, and I was laughing very hard. And then at one point, he kind of... He kind of chuckled real hard, oh, and one no. of the wet, gooey marshmallows flew out of his mouth and landed <laughs> right on the back of the shirt of the girl sitting in front of us. Oh, no. <laughs> and she didn't notice, and he like, <laughs> oh. he's like, what should I do? I was like, you should leave it there because <laughs> she's going to have to wash it anyway. We did not tell her. I think she probably. This is the worst. I hate that story. I hate every part of that story. (laughs) What was I supposed to do? I don't. I I, first of all, what? uh, Who are you going to these baseball games with? Jeez. I say that I ran into a a guy that I know who's probably like seventy or eighty, and he does not have any teeth at all. And I actually saw him this morning. I ran into him at the grocery store. Ugh, it's just something about that. It's like looking into a, a casket or something, you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of frightening. Like, if you, there's some primeval fear about losing your teeth because mm-hmm. if you lose your teeth a thousand years ago, you're dead. Mm-hmm. You can't eat. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. But anyway, geez, yeah. please move on from this topic. <laughs> Okay, so, well, I was writing... Well, why, why are you down in the dumps, though? Wait, we got to get just, to the bottom I'm of this. Just depre- I just have depression. You know, I just get depressed sometimes. What do you do? What can you do? Well, I mean, today I um, 
I exercised a lot. I can't always do something about it. Sometimes I can't. We, what I did yesterday is I, I sat down and I, I started writing because that's what mm. I often do when I'm depressed. Because usually it depends on if it's like a chemical depressive, depressive episode or more of a circumstantial one, you know? Because mm. like today, for example, I <laughs> welcome to Psychology Today with John and Zay. Um, <laughs> I was today I was I was I would say more. Um, it was more of a chemical thing. I was describing to Kelly. This happens periodically where. Today it was actually very specifically because I'm a dumbass and I missed I take a, a drug called Paxil and it really helps kind of even out my chemical imbalance. And um and what's nice is I really have no side effects. I can't even tell that I'm taking it when I'm taking it regularly. The problem is I missed one because I was mm. busy. Mm. And um it usually takes about forty eight hours for that to really hit me. And this morning, I had forgotten that a couple days ago I missed a Paxil. Uh oh! I took it, but I took it late, and so I took it like the morning after I was supposed to take it. You know, mm-hmm. and um, and man, I, I cratered this morning. And there's not much I can do with that except for like just go on a run and just really just knuckle through it. You know, there's just it's just very chemical because nothing was wrong this morning. You know, I wake up, I had a good day. There's nothing wrong. I just feel like crap. You know, I'm tired and mm. everything seems wrong. You know, everything has this shade of gray over. You know sure. how it is. You've been depressed, I'm sure. And there's just not a whole lot you can do about it when it's that kind of that kind of chemical thing. Exercise did help. But yesterday I think I was just having a bad mo- I was just in a bad mood. Sure, know? sure, sure. And um but anyway, I was um <laughs> Do you want to hear something I wrote to myself? Kind oh, of a pet talk gee, manifesto. It is. Yeah. Oh, manifesto. You piqued my interest. Well, exactly. Well, yeah. Gee whiz. I thought you were. I thought you'd be. Well, if it was all like, I am. It's dark outside and it's raining in my oh, bowl. No, no, no. This is the opposite of that. Okay. Here we opposite. go. I'm ready. Well, so I. Well, so I've been. I write a lot, and sometimes I write. I write to or sort of between kind of versions of myself because I see these different it's probably some psychologist could probably identify it according to some Freudian framework but effectively I think we can all relate to this like there's a there's a there's a sort of powerful kind of encouraging empowered side of myself and then there's kind of the self-loathing side of myself and, mm-hmm. and they're constantly at war with each other you know for dominance over my psyche sure does that sound at all does that make sense of course yeah that's definitely the case okay that's definitely the case in schizophrenics yeah <laughs> sorry just kidding no <laughs> so i call that other side of myself old zay mm. old zay like old greg you know old zay i joke that when new zay is at the helm old zay will kind of come like clanking up the basement stairs you know and come up and tell Newsy why he should feel terrible mm. about himself you know mm-hmm. and usually it's bullshit Newsy is very susceptible to old Zay's lies and so sometimes i gotta put old Zay in his place you know right so i wrote this for myself and i got really amped you know because I, I just you know i try to read a lot i try to think about these issues because i don't want to just be you know, blown by the wind. You're saying crap. every time you say you know. news, I, I, I don't know why it just sounds like somebody with an accent 
talking about the movie musical Newsies. Newsies. It's Newsies. That's how they say it down here. Christian Bale. I'm sorry. Begin. Just quick context. Everyone knows I really like the book of Ecclesiastes. So, okay. I said, old Zay, you sneaky bastard. You trapped me again, but I'm back. (laughs) I'm done wallowing. I'm done. Because what's the point? If everything is pointlessly and incomprehensively small and insignificant, then what's the point of lamenting it? I'm not making anyone miserable but myself. I'm not fixing anything either. Sacrifice and service are the only way, not because they're inherently important or because I'll accomplish anything, but rather because they remind me how unimportant I am. Death to self, death to my ego, is the ultimate act of humility And therein lies the only kind of enlightenment I'm ever going to find. Everything out there, quote unquote, all attainment is vanity, striving after wind. I cannot achieve anything. The accolades, the approval I seek means nothing. The shit I want to buy, the comfort I want, the things I become obsessed with are utterly less than pointless. They are in fact poisoned because nothing will make me less happy, more confused about my purpose than the pursuit of a purpose outside of the shit that is right in front of me. Life is struggle. Everyone honest has come to that same exact conclusion. Every single one of them. You know, you've got Buddha, Jesus, Chuang Tzu, all those guys, they all figure it out. But in the surrender to that struggle lies the lasting peace. And then this is this quote from this crazy old uh, 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 guy who got eaten. Literally, he got eaten in Rome. Huh? Because he was like a martyr or something. Who? Uh, I think his name was Ignatius. He was some Mm. old saint. He said, I am the wheat of God. May I be ground up by the teeth of the wild beasts until I become the fine bread of Christ. Sheesh. It's kind of dark, but I get really amped when I think about my life as kind of small rather than big. Because then it's okay if I don't do it all right. And it's okay if I don't get where I thought I was going to go. I just have to work hard. You know, I got to do the work because the work is good. And I'm finally hitting that point with rollers. There's no question about this. I mean... I know, but I have to remind myself. Right, of right. It. No, but it's important. But I, uh, the martyr stuff, it makes me a little nervous because it's like that's not the answer either. You don't want to get ground into a fine dust. Well, no, I don't. I don't think that guy chose to be martyred, but he did decide that he would rather die. Just convert, bruh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's awesome. Well, dude, I was I, it's part of the reason I was thinking about this. I think is I've been reading. Speaking of tragedy. Mm. I've been reading, I don't know how I got so deep on this, but man, I am diving real deep on the Vietnam War. Uh-oh. The wormhole, the warhole, the Vietnam wormhole. It's a lot, yeah. dude. I've been watching, but I cannot recommend highly enough. I, I, I implore everyone watching this on Netflix. Ken Burns made a 10-part documentary about Vietnam, and it's utterly shocking how little they taught us about Vietnam when we were young because it so perfectly sums up the kind of transition between traditionalism and kind of the modern era. They're just any people, they're like, I never thought the government could lie to me. <laughs> Who thinks that? People in the 40s and 50s thought oh, it. Word, you know, true. like they yeah, genuinely sure. believed that the government was good. Right. And I'm just saying no one believes that anymore, no. in part because of Vietnam. Things that I never knew. For example, that Ho Chi Minh, who was the leader of Vietnam, North Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh 
wanted to establish an American-style democracy. Mm. But we ignored his dispatches, and eventually he had no choice but to align with China and Russia because they were the only ones that were going to help him liberate himself from the French because we got held hostage by the French who were basically like, no, we're not going to do what you want. Anyway, the point is there's all this sort of crazy stuff, all these miscommunications that happened over the course of a decade. And part of the reason I think it's really interesting is because it really helped. It's really helping me understand our wars in the Middle East. You know, there's no defined enemy. There's no defined goal. It's even more. Um, We don't know who we're fighting. It's even worse. But yeah, you realize like, oh, this is how we get into this because we've already done it. There's an there's an element to this. that's like, oh, it was just a bunch of miscommunications and mistakes. And it's like, I don't think so. I think it was willful greed and people are making absolute fortunes, man. Yeah, the war machine. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm not saying it's just miscommunications. I'm saying I think it started with a lot of miscommunications mm-hmm. and then people realized they that for pride, for all sorts of the wrong reasons, decided to continue to fight. You know, the, the inciting incident of the Vietnam War is the Gulf of Tonkin. I know a little bit about it, but you should describe it. Basically, it's one of these like conspiracy theory stories, but it's kind of confirmed. You can look it up. But in the Gulf of Tonkin, we had a ship out there and wherever near Vietnam, and we claimed that the the Vietnamese sunk this ship or attacked this ship and they didn't do anything. They weren't even near it. It was a complete hoax. But the guy who was the admiral of that ship in the Gulf of Tonkin was Jim Morrison from the Doors' dad. Whoa. Did you know? You probably did because you're you're smart about these kinds of things. I sure as hell didn't that the Vietnam War really started in like the 50s. I didn't know that. You mean American involvement? Yeah. Oh, I didn't. Jeez. We had like advisors over there. When the French fighting, were over there? Even though they weren't supposed to. Yeah, we started going over there in like the 50s, dude. Right at the beginning of Kennedy's presidency, we were already starting to get overly involved. And then Lyndon Johnson starts to amp it all up. And dude, all these guys on the ground, all these colonels and stuff, were writing back and basically saying, we are losing the war. We are absolutely backing the wrong horse. Mm. This is not going to be a domino effect. Like everyone's saying we need to get the F out of here because we are backing the wrong dictator and we are going to lose. And the people hate us. Boy, that sounds very familiar. I know. And all the people on the ground were like, we cannot win. And we would lead these guys in with our shit, our helicopters, our guns, our training, all of our stuff. Once again, familiar. And, we would drag people out of their houses and kill them because we suspected that they were the Viet Cong. And what these villagers were saying on camera in this doc is they would come in and they're like, if you kill the right guy, you still end up having someone replace him because you just killed someone's brother. And you better fucking believe he's going to join the Viet Cong now to fight us because we look like these assholes coming over here and destroying their, their country. If you kill the wrong guy, you just recruited 10 guys to the other side. So there's literally no way to win because all of a sudden their force just grows and grows and grows and grows. And it's just absolutely bonkers. Anyway, it sounds really familiar where we're at now. All the stuff going on at home sounds really familiar because for many, many years, no one gave a shit about what was going on in Vietnam. I'm also reading this other book called um, Dispatches, which is written by a guy named Michael Hare, who also went on to co-author the screenplays for... 
Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket, arguably the two greatest Vietnam War movies of all time. He wrote a book called Dispatches, and he was on the ground in Vietnam for like freaking years and just living and breathing and just writing about what was really going on. Not that I really need to recount all of the atrocities, but when you don't have a defined enemy and you don't have a defined goal, all these people, he interviews real people on the ground who basically their perception of their whole point reason for being in Vietnam was to just kill as many Vietnamese people as they possibly could, almost indiscriminately, whether they were like Viet Cong or South Vietnamese sympathizers. It really didn't matter to most people. They were just like, if you're running away from me, I'm going to shoot you, you know? Ugh. It's crazy. Man. Well, you know what's kind of nuts? I'm. It is easy to get depressed about all this, but right now, well, even a step back, we obliterated Japan and Germany during World War II. We nuked mm. Japan right. twice, and they're our strongest ally right. right now. We're allies with Germany. We helped rebuild both of those countries. Same with Vietnam, dude. Vietnam right. loves America now. Paradoxically, it's not that long ago. It was like, it was in the 60s and 70s, man. I have friends who fought in the Vietnam War, like people in my neighborhood that I've become yeah. friends with who literally were in foxholes in the Vietnam War, yeah. you know, and like we're in the shit. And you could go to Vietnam They're still alive. right now, dude. You saw Deer Hunter, one of the most. Also, my landlord is Vietnamese. She moved here because of the war. Right. Now she's my landlord. Right. It's just it is kind of great. Like the human spirit in one sense. Yes, the war was insane. It was corrupt, just terrible. But the actual people yeah. are willing to essentially forget about that, not hold grudges. As another friend of mine said, if the politicians' kids were the first ones to go to war, we'd never fight a single one. Oh, sure. And I don't think truer words have ever been spoken. Yeah, I'm not at all saying, like, screw the guys who went over there. They didn't. No way. It wasn't their problem. The problem is Lyndon B. Johnson not wanting to admit that he needed to just go home, even though he was not an elected official, friggin' vice president. Probably behind Kennedy getting assassinated. Whoa. Anyway, gosh, this is really turning into it. I'm just <laughs> Mr. Smallman, open the door, please. Supposedly, his wife has diaries that will be released, I think, in the year 2050. They're locked away in some vault, and eventually somebody's going to mm. release them. She knows. She knows something, or she knew something. Mm. Jackie, dude. She definitely knew something. She just jetted off with mm. that Greek dude. Can't blame her. She jetted off with that Greek Onassis dude. <laughs> And just kicked it like in the Caribbean for the rest of her life and didn't say a word. But she she had to know something. Well, everybody knows that that Kennedy was a bit of a philanderer. True. Um, yeah, but it's different times. Different times. <laughs> okay. The point of all of this, though, John, is I don't know what cause to fight for necessarily, and I don't mm -hmm. need to know. What I know is that I'm not interested in selling out. I'm not interested in forgetting the reason I'm making things. Like right now, I am very privileged. I am incredibly privileged. I have an incredibly good life. I live in an incredibly functional country, all things considered. And I'm watching this story about Vietnam. I'm reading about Vietnam. And I'm like, there were people going to college in Saigon trying to just make shit work. Yeah. And to your point, Vietnam likes us now because surprise, surprise, they never hated America. They just didn't want to be a colony anymore. Well, that sounds familiar too. That's what we did. <laughs> exactly. There's exactly. There's still a communist country. Good for them, dude. Good for them. All right. Quick shout out. 
Back to the movie world. A friend of mine, Ash Mayfair, she's Vietnamese. She made a movie called The Third Wife. Hmm. And uh, I think it's available now. And it's really, really, really good. She's super interesting. Look it up. It just came out. The Third Wife. It's terrific. This movie's got a great rating online, too. It does. Like 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, The point is that I don't care what cause I fight for yet because I don't feel the need to go out and like go to Vietnam go to Iraq for that matter or go to Afghanistan it's just not my calling but I am not interested in in living in the matrix as we talked about many times and and I find myself doing that more when I start thinking about like who's going to buy rollers you know I have to ask these questions to some extent as a producer sure. but when instead I just think how do I make this movie good? Right. I know I've said this. I'm beating a dead horse, but it's. In, I think it's important to be honest about how much back and forth I have with all of this because you don't choose these things once. That's what I'm starting to realize. I think I thought back in the fall when I was like, okay, this is the movie I'm making, that that was the last time I was going to make the movie. But the reality is the, the people have said, uh, uh, so I don't know who said it, but they said you write a movie three times. You write the script you write you rewrite it when you commit it to film with actors mm-hmm. and then rewrite it in the edit and i was always kind of like yeah if you fuck it up <laughs> but what i'm realizing is nope that's just how it works mm. period you just have to keep being open there is no thought of attainment you're never done you know it's a cycle ultimately addiction which is again a very key theme of rollers that, that Rufus is living in a cycle, mm-hmm. you know, and that he's spiraling and he's going down into himself and into his mind and into his isolation. And that ultimately that is a very different process of storytelling than kind of this, you get from here to the top of the mountain and then you just stay there. That's not how it works. And I think, you know, war is, a, it's all a cycle. I think is what I'm trying to say. And I'm very at peace when I remember that, you know, when I remember people have been dying in wars for millennia. And um, like we've said many times that there's little you can do about that, but ultimately the world is probably a better place than it ever has been. And maybe we just need to keep fighting for good shit instead of bad shit. I took my kids to school today. They've been on summer break and it was their desk day. You know, you go in, you meet your new teacher, you meet all your little bros that are going to be in your class and as we're walking in, you know, the kids are nervous. I said to one of my kids, I was like, dude, uh, you know, a few years ago, 24 years ago, this was me. I was doing this. I was going to school just like you are. And here I am now, you know, like, it's fine. You're going to be fine. And then eventually we're all going to croak, you know, so it doesn't matter. But also enjoy right. this, you know, enjoy this time. Like, don't worry about it because you'll be through it eventually. But then I started to get nervous. Like, this is a terrible message to teach a kid. You know, maybe I should just shut up. Is it though? I don't know. I was getting I nervous. Think it's a great message. It is. I love the idea that I'm going to die one day. Yeah, but you're an adult. There's a time where death is not scary. It's like, man, I could be ready for this, you know? And when you're a kid, it is not the time to start thinking that. It isn't the time to start thinking about it, but it is appropriate to recognize that it will happen one day because it's a good reminder to make the most of it. Very true. I think it's just, I, I think it's very encouraging. Life is like a game of Settlers of Catan. Sometimes you're like, you know, I'm going to build my shit around the eights and a four, and I'm going to just dominate wheat, and I'm going to crush this game. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to build 90 cities. And then an eight and a four don't get rolled, and then the game's over. But life, 
I know we only kind of get one, but at the same time, it all gets reset, man. You can't control where you're born and when you're born. And at the end of the day, you're going to die. And so is everybody else. And empires will crumble and people will come up with new reasons to kill each other. But they'll also come up with new reasons to be cool and make art. And it's all a cycle. We're all going to die. It's, a, it's okay, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, not in a reckless way, but it's fun. Well, no, of know? course not. It's fun to be alive. It's fun to be alive, especially if you just hold on to it lightly, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay, I'm gonna give one I'm gonna say one last thing. Sure. Part of what made me think about all of this is one of the big first things that anyone saw about Vietnam was a Buddhist monk setting himself on fire in the middle of the street in Saigon. Right. That was one of the first things that everyone encountered. And I would not I wanna be very clear, I would not set myself on fire. But I found it pretty cool that he was willing to give his life for something that he would never see personally, you know, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the soldiers that were lied to, which is fucking maddening from America thought they were doing the same thing. They were told you are going to give your life to provide a better way of life for the people in Vietnam. Unfortunately, that was that was not true and they were being manipulated. But they believed it to be true and you can understand given the time and the place how that could be the case. And I think that's a really admirable awesome way to view your life, which is I am part of a big, huge, complicated, long-term ecosystem that is bigger than myself. And ultimately, the contribution that I make to it will be microscopic, and yet it is worth it to continue to contribute to it rather than to, 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 to take from it, you know? And mm. that's what I think I took away from it, is like, I don't want to light myself on fire, but I do like the idea that there are things in the world worth fighting for. Yeah. Well, it is true. It doesn't, you're going to, the government, dude, they're going to do what they're going to do, which is nothing good. And right. I, I was having this conversation. But if with the government people. wants to come kill me, dude, let him come, baby. Yeah. I hope you know? it doesn't come to that, but no, there are, but there are things worth fighting for, dude. There are people that are hungry in your city right now that you can go feed. There right. are people that there's just stuff you can do, man. Even tiny little stuff. Give yeah. people food. Like if when you go to fucking get fast food, dude, get an extra sandwich and give it to somebody. You know, there's little shit you can do right. that's gonna help somebody change somebody's life right. potentially. Anyway, yeah. should we leave it there? Totally. Yeah, we should leave it there. All right. Talk to you later, John. Bye. Talk to you, dog.